Listeners, welcome back to the Business of Wellness podcast. I am thrilled about today's episode. I say that every week, but I promise you this week, you are going to be in for such a treat. My guest today is Tara Vanderdussen. She is better known online as the New Mexico Milkmaid. She's a fifth generation dairy farmer, wife, environmental scientist, mom of two girls, a New Mexico native. And she is incredible. She is also the co-host of the Discover Ag podcast, which I highly recommend. I'm going to link to that in our episode notes today because I have been binging this podcast basically since this conversation with Tara. I just, I find it to be super useful. Basically, they review three different, Tara and her co-hosts review three different topics in agriculture that have made the news of the week and kind of dissect them and take you behind the scenes and give you a, a better understanding of what the topic actually is, what it's not, and what the behind the scenes story is from the perspective of two farmers. Tara really has so much wisdom to share. I loved recording this episode. We go through a whole bunch of different myth-busting exercises that you guys know I love, and you are going to love all of these too. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. Again, you can always like and subscribe to the Business of Wellness. I remind you that we are moving to Patreon very soon, but this episode I just had to make available to everyone. Um, so you can follow the podcast, of course, on Instagram at the business of wellness underscore pod. Of course, you can follow me at Jacqueline London RD everywhere on social and definitely find and follow Tara. She's at New Mexico Milkmaid. She is awesome. I know you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about after you've listened to this episode. Enjoy. Hello, Tara, welcome to the business of wellness. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to talk with you. This is truly thrilling. I cannot even tell you. I have been so eager to have you on the podcast. And I feel like we just need to start at the very top. We need to hear about your background. You are a fifth generation dairy farmer. I, you you have to forgive my ignorance. <laughs> talk to you from Manhattan. Just tell us, just give us the soup to nuts rundown what is it like growing up on a dairy farm and how has it changed? Because I know you have two daughters. Is that right? Yes, I do. Amazing. So how has it changed? How has it evolved? But first, tell us what it's like before we get into the whole evolution of dairy. Yeah. Okay. So you um, you touched on a lot of things. So I'll just kind of give a rundown of my my life, my background. But yes, I'm a fifth generation dairy farmer. So I grew up on my parents' dairy farm in eastern New Mexico. I um, It was amazing. I mean, obviously, it's the only thing I know because of every, I feel like even everyone I know is dairy farmers. So it was, you know, like a lot of dairy farming, but it really was a really cool experience. I'm one of four kids. We grew up about a hundred steps from the dairy barn. And so like it was your backyard was a dairy farm. And so, you know, playing in the cotton seed, building hay for it's like a lot, a lot of outdoor time. Um, very different, I would say, from probably like city or urban um, settings. Like we didn't go play with like other kids. Typically, you were kind of like with your siblings and that's it. Right. Um, and, you know, and I feel like even th things have changed now, like back in the day, back in the day makes me sound so old. But, uh, you know, I feel like parents were definitely much more like free range parenting. <laughs> like you could leave for the day and, you know, be gone. But you know, lots of kittens, lots of calves. A few times we raised pigs. So just lots of adventuring, um, you know, with animals, farm life, like kind of the ideal, like what you'd think of, I feel like if you thought of like a farm kid. Um, and then I actually went away and got my degree um, at the University of Arizona in environmental science. And during that time, I started dating my husband, ultimately married my husband. And um, after graduation, moved back to his family farm because he is also a fifth generation dairy farmer. Wow. Grew up just down the road from each other. My older brother and him were best friends. So very funny. We did not start dating till I was 21. So it was not like a high school sweetheart situation, mm -hmm. but we have known each other our whole life. And now we dairy farm with his family. And then um, I've spent most of my career working as an environmental consultant for dairy farms throughout New Mexico. So my husband's family dairy, my family dairy, and then clients throughout New Mexico. Wow. And then um, recently have made the shift to kind of, you know, I started sharing online, opening up my social media channels, sharing about our farm life. Um, and now I kind of full-time, you know, share on social media, which sounds so silly to stay, say, but that's what I do. And I podcast about agriculture. That's awesome. 
That is so very much needed because I have, I mean, the, the main reason why I've been so excited to talk to you is because I just feel like without having a real connection, without having the education opportunities to really hear, and I don't mean formal education opportunities, I mean like podcasting, like being able to have real conversations with other people in the space on specific topics, we are really missing this massive understanding about food and where it comes from. You know, I mean, I just feel like more and more it, this is the kind of thing that I wind up talking about just in practice as a dietitian is like, well, we have to know a little bit about where food comes from in order to actually really appreciate food and the people behind food. Cause that is also just so important to everything. Right. I, I love mean, that you are saying that. That is exactly like the heart of Discover Ag, the podcast I'm a co-host on is um, our website is actually the hands that feed us and it's connections with the hands that feed us. We want to tell people about agriculture, but connect them with someone who is growing, raising their food. There's so many misconceptions out there about agriculture, specifically, you know, cattle industry, you know, animal agriculture, dairy farming. And sometimes when you can just have a conversation, it changes everything that you can just have a dialogue open open up that conversation and be able to answer questions and there's just so much people don't know and like how why would you you know yeah. it's we're thousands of miles you know tons of states apart like it's hard to know even at being an ag when i learn about other sectors of ag i'm always surprised and shocked mm -hmm. about what i learn like there's just so much to it and so um that's truly like at the heart of discover ag podcast is just having a conversation that's amazing. I love it. All right. So I want to get into all of this, but before we do, I need to back us up a little bit because we need to hear, we need to hear, I've mentioned to you, I'm sitting here in midtown Manhattan. <laughs> I need to hear a little bit more about the day in the life. I mean, pretend we're doing a get ready with me on TikTok, but not, but, but yes. we, won't, we won't stand around putting on a lot. Okay. There, there they are. There are the beasts. There are my little animals. This is like its own little <laughs> Your own farm. Right, its own little farm right now here, here. It actually, I think kind of adds a little bit of extra. It gives a little bit of an extra vibe to I love the it. podcast. I think we might just keep it. Um, just give us your day in life. Where does yeah. it start? You wake up at what time? What's a typical day look like for you? If there is such a thing as a typical day. Yeah. So I'll, um, I'll kind of, let me give a little bit of background before I do that. So I said, I like, I work as an environmental consultant, so I do not work with the cows like hands on in the way my husband does. My husband does all day-to-day -day management. So I'll give a little bit of our family life and then maybe what his day yeah. looks like too. So actually my kids are growing up very similar to how I grew up. We're about 150 steps from the milking barn. Um, and it's kind of funny. We're a big farm. We're a very large farm. Um, the average herd size in uh, the U.S. is about 300 and we have significantly more than that. And I always joke that if people, you know, if people didn't know us, they would call us a factory farm. Mm -hmm. And it makes me laugh because my backyard is literally our close-up pen. So it is our cows that are giving birth. And I'm like, I guess oh. if this is a factory, I love it because it's, oh. I mean, I spent my morning going on a run around the dairy and taking the girls for a walk. Um, obviously we're in the middle of summer, so my kids are home and um, just like going to the barn. I, you know, passed my husband on the, the loader. Like, you know, it, we're just right here being involved in our farm, um, which is very different, I think, than what people think of when they hear like big farms or you know, mm -hmm. fact, quote unquote factory farms. So, um, typical day on the dairy, it does start early. My husband leaves to work to, by 5.30, 5.45. It just depends what he has going on. And, um, you know, mornings on dairies are very busy. It's like when everything, this morning when I was running, it was like, it felt like the dairy was coming to life. Like that is, you know, so how cool. I can describe it. You know, the cows are getting up, the cows are getting fed. Um, cows get fed twice a day, every single day. Um, and actually a nutritionist, a cow nutritionist wow. plans all of their diets for depending on what stage of life they're in. And um, the pens were getting cleaned. So Every day we scrape groom the pens um, and then cows go to get milked twice a day, every day. And um, they get milked for about eight minutes is how long it takes. Um, so not very long. They don't spend a ton of time in the barn. And then out here in New Mexico, we have really pretty mild climate. It's like mm -hmm. pretty good weather. And so our cows are actually out in what's called an open lot. So it's big open pens and they're just outside um, year round uh, with wind wind blocks, uh, sunshades, and then their time in the barn, like I mentioned. Um, so dairy cows are very routine. So it is very much the same thing every single day without fail. We do the same things. And then you have all of the, you know, farm things of like what goes wrong in the day that has to be added to all the other things. But I mean, essentially the cows are fed every day. The cows are milked every day, twice a day for both things. Wow. Okay. Give us now you have to forgive me because I feel very rusty on this, but I, I have, this little memory popping up for me, which I know is completely different, is how poultry 
and how certain things about the way that poultry are raised and if they're in, you know, let's use the phrase free range, they're grazing free range, they're out and about. What does it, what does it mean that the cows are kind of like, did you call it a pen? They're like in there sort of, it's yep. not really a, I, I imagine it's a pretty big one, right? Like yes. it's like large open. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, we need more so, on this. No, this is such a great question. Also, okay. like animal proteins tend to get kind of like lumped together, but like yes, poultry hogs are completely different than dairy farming. My co-host is a cattle rancher in Nebraska, completely different. Her cows are like out on pasture, you know, and they're beef cows. So they are like, I know they're both totally. cows, but it's right. very different between beef cows and dairy cows. Um, So everything is a little different. And then within dairy, if you were in the Midwest where they have, you know, lots of snowstorms or up in like um, the Northeast by you, um, you would have more cows that are indoor more often just because it's really hard on, like the weather can be obviously really hard on them so protecting them from the elements so that's why i mentioned like our climate is just not it doesn't get that that hot we have like a hot week right now in the middle of summer but typically it's not that hot it's not that cold um and so yeah our cows are in big open pens kind of like what you would think of if you've ever like a horse corral but it's it's a big pen got it and okay. um it's really important like one of the things you can't put like there's so much like science and information that goes into behind why a cow is in a certain pen even um like our cows we make sure that we don't put too many cows in a, a pen because they need to be able to get access to food and water without you know they're a herd so they have like an alpha cow and you know non-alpha mm -hmm. cow so it's like this whole dynamics um and then we put uh older cows are closer to the barn so they don't have to walk as far younger cows are further away so there's like just a lot that goes into it and then we try not to move them a ton because um again because that herd mentality they really become like close with the cows in their group and so keeping them together keeps them really calm keeps them in a comfortable environment there's just there's a lot that goes into it wow okay before we move on just tell us just give us a little overview about the food what are they eating are mm -hmm. they putting in are they putting in a room service request the night before for their like <laughs> <Mara>? nutritionist <laughs> we it's would like we would like um sunny side up eggs like what's it looking like for the cow yeah, their diets is actually one of my favorite things to talk about because it's really cool. Um, cows are actually very local eaters. They were like doing the local thing before it was popular. Um, and so what they eat really depends on what part of the country they're in because you have access to different types of foods and forages depending on where you're located. Um, and so, yeah, the nutritionist does plan the diet and it's called a TMR, a total mixed ration. And the reason that we mix it all up, it looks like a giant mixer. It's a huge truck, but on the inside, it looks like what would be your like KitchenAid stand mixer and it mixes everything because cows are really picky eaters and they will pick out their favorite things and throw out what they don't like. Like, so they have like a feed bunk and they, like you'll see like their least favorite things. They will push them out with their tongue. And so trying to mix them up so that we make sure they get like their minerals, their vitamins. <laughs> Basically, they have to eat their fruit and vegetables even if they don't want to. Okay. Um, and then what they eat is um, a variety of things. So, you know, you hear a lot of things about cows being fed corn. And what always surprises people when I talk about this is one of the things we do feed cows is corn, but we also feed them what's called corn silage. And it's mm -hmm. actually where we chop the entire plant, leaves, stems, everything. And I always joke, it looks a lot more like a Southwest salad than it does a corn on the cob. Like it's very green. And oh, then you good. see some corn sprinkled in. And then there's obviously haze and grasses. And then one of the things that cows do that's my favorite thing about cows and dairy and sustainability is they eat what's called byproducts. And I mm -hmm. hate that word because it makes it sound like it's like something bad, but essentially it's leftovers from other processes. So when you make ethanol, there is like grains that are left over and we can feed those to our cows. They would otherwise end up in a landfill creating emissions, you know, going to waste. Um, when you make cotton, I'm wearing a cotton t-shirt right now. There is a seed leftover called a cotton seed and our cows eat it. It's a really great source of protein for our cows. And I mean, that list goes on and on. If you are in Florida, they feed their cows um, like citrus pulp. If you're in California, they'll feed cows like almond hulls that are leftover. So like lots of different things. Um, grocery store waste can go like so if you have fruits and vegetables that are, you know, they're fine. They just got passed over in the grocery store. Um, those can be fed to dairy cows. So it's actually really cool what all they can eat. And then, like I said, we work with that nutritionist to balance, make sure they're getting exactly which minerals they need to produce, you know, a high quality um, milk. That's amazing. All right. So my, my last question on this topic about your day. So you having your degree in environmental sciences and taking that path and doing consulting now, what is that? What, what kind of work does that entail? And what does that mean for you in, let's call it 
a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. So I always joke that I do the back end of the dairy. Uh, so yeah. I am on the manure management side of things. Um, cows do produce uh-huh. a lot of manure, right. but it is a really great resource. So we actually collect all of the manure out of our pens and we compost it. That composted manure is uh, then hauled off to other farms to be used as natural fertilizer to uh, one of the best things for soil health is making sure you have really high organic matter. And cow manure is an amazing source of organic matter. So it plays into soil health. And then we actually collect all of the water used in our barn. We typically recycle one gallon of water up to five times on a dairy farm. We collect it in what's called a lagoon. It's you know not pretty, but it serves a really great purpose. We actually collect all the rainwater from our farm in our lagoon. And then we use that water to water our crops and those crops then feed our cows. So it comes like full circle. So that's really my area. Um, I'll sample the lagoons. I sample all of our groundwater. Um, I do a lot of water sampling and then analyzing that data, make sure we're not over applying nutrients um, and just like kind of watching the nutrient content um, in our soil health as well as in water so it's and then water conservation is another big thing, uh, making sure that we're not overusing water. And so there's just like a lot that goes into that side of things. And that's really my area of focus. That's what I've always done. And so what I end up doing is kind of being a, um, a, like between the producers, the dairy farmers Mm -hmm. and the legislators. So I help them with permitting and regulations and, you know, all of those kind of federal and state regulations is where I come in and help Mm -hmm. them. So what are you, let's just use soil, for example. Mm -hmm. What, What are you looking for when you're testing soil specifically? Yeah. So soil is like, I always say like the proof is in the pudding, but it's like the proof is in the soil. Like your soil health is really everything. And I think we're learning that you're seeing that in the news of like how much carbon can be sequestered when your soils are healthy. Um, And so we sample our soils every year down to three feet and we sample them for a bunch of different things. But essentially when we apply either um, that you know, composted manure or the rainwater, the runoff water from our lagoon, it has nutrients in it. And so we want to see where the nutrients are in the soil profile. So that's why mm-hmm. we sample down to three feet. So we want to make sure the nutrients are staying in that top foot where the plants can take them up and can utilize them and obviously turn them into the crop and the, the plant they're going to be. And you don't want to see that moving down through the soil profile because yeah. that then, you know, tells you you're over applying. And then you can make adjustments, like you can plant yeah. different things that have dip, deeper root systems. And I know this is probably like getting into the weeds of it, oh but God, um, I love it. And there's I a love ton. I love the pun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting into the weeds of it out in the field. So yeah, there's just a lot that goes into it. So really managing um, that, that nutrient content. Wow. So, and not to take us too far down this rabbit hole, but when you are testing and like, let's say you do have that moment where you're like, uh oh, it seems like there's a trend here. Or this is going in the wrong mm-hmm. direction. So you're, so you can plant, you can, you can try to improve conditions by planting something new. What, what else, what else goes into soil health? management. Yeah. In so when we get those test results back, um, you know, we analyze them, we go over them with the farmer, we go over them with if they have a crop consultant as well, like the entire team, mm-hmm. the nutritionist is involved in this because, you know, what are we planting that we're going to feed the cow? So there's a lot of people that come in and kind of are giving their, you know, two cents of what we're doing. And, you know, you have to think about mother nature, like here in New Mexico, we have mm-hmm. a very dry climate. Um, water yeah. is our limiting resource. So we are also having to take into account what can we actually grow realistically with the limited water supply we have. Um, and so you're making changes on what to plant um, and how much to apply. You can also like choose not to apply manure to those fields if you're seeing too much nutrients in the soils. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this is like constantly, you know, readjusting, making changes every single year, every single cropping season. Um, And then seeing, you know, making sure it fits with the rest of the team as well of what we're doing. Um, And so there's just a lot that kind of goes into that decision-making process of of what we're going to plant, when we're going to plant it, when we're going to harvest it, all of those things. So it's not, it's not a daily check-in on the soil. It's more like a quarterly slash. Yes. Okay. So we have, uh, we actually plant two crops a year. We have a winter crop and a summer crop. And so you kind of work in like planting and harvesting seasons. Cause I mean, when something's in the ground, you know, it's, it's growing, it's thriving. Um, but there is really cool data out there. There's a lot of cool things happening in ag technology, um, mm-hmm. that you could totally geek out on if you're like a, you know, a, a tech nerd, but there are people that are doing like soil moisture probes where they're checking things way more regularly, seeing how much, um, you know, water needs to be planted that day or that week mm-hmm. on a field. And so there's some really exciting things happening, work with drones and and satellites to be able to give us more data and more information to kind of make these decisions on a more regular basis. So that's kind of a cool piece of agriculture. 
So cool. All right. So we have to switch gears because I have to get into the real meat of things with you, which is myths. We love a good myth busting moment. I personally do. This podcast does. That's really what we're here to do. And I know that you are so powerful in this space about clarifying some of the biggest myths that are out there about dairy, about agriculture in general. But uh, let's, let's start by just take it slow for a second. (laughs) One thing that I really, because I, this impacts me on a daily basis. I'm sure it must impact you, which is every single piece of content that's out there on social media. I mean, sometimes you have the rare moment as I did of finding someone like you who, who actually knows what they're talking about and is out there doing the work to, to clarify some of the craziest myths that I hear literally every single day. It's like you log into a platform and you hear something new that kind of blows your mind of like, how did you even get there? I don't even know how you got to that. What, how do you see social media impacting things for your line of work? And how did you kind of start getting into this space of saying, all right, I'm going to go out there and, and start talking basically? <laughs> Yeah, that's such a good question. No, um, so seven years ago is when I decided to start sharing online and I yeah. had a young daughter. I had a almost two year old and I was doing what all like classic millennial moms do. It's like join all the mom Facebook groups and be like, you know, what do we feed our kids? How do we feed them? How do we transition to, you know, from breast milk or formula to something else? Like all those food conversations. And what really surprised me is how many of the conversations ended up being around milk, which now looking back, I don't know why it did. I mean, you mm-hmm. are trying to figure out, you know, milk is a can be a big staple in kids' life. So there was a lot of conversation in these mom groups about milk. And then from there, a lot of the conversations ended up being about like dairy's impact on the environment. And Mm -hmm. so many of them were like, I don't want to say wrong, but just like misinformed or misled Mm -hmm. or had seen something online that was not true or didn't give the whole picture. And I just felt like I needed a space that was like, come learn about dairy farming, like come and see, you know, what this side of dairy farming as far as especially the environmental impact side, because that's my area of work. Um, and so that was really when like my platform was born mm-hmm. was just wanting to open up my farm and be able to ask, answer people's questions and see what kind of questions they were having. Yeah. And so, you know, social media is a crazy, crazy situation. Like there's so many positives from it. Like there's so many people you can be connected with and learn from. And at the same time, I feel like you can find information like leading you in any direction possible, right? Like you will find the information you are looking for out on there out lo- online. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think there are positives. I do think the positives though outweigh the negatives. And I think in like our post COVID world, I think COVID was really like groundbreaking in a lot of ways. But one of them was people wanted to know about their food supply system. How was food? You know, we had a lot of issues with food supplies and grocery store shelves being empty. And it made people stop and question and wonder where their food was coming from and wanting to be more connected. I've, I've seen such a trend. I mean, I've been doing this for seven years in the last three years, more than ever are people from more urban settings having questions and looking for those answers. Um, and so I think in that way, social media is so powerful. I mean, it's a free app on our phone that we can open up from, you know, middle of nowhere, New Mexico and be able to connect with you in, in Manhattan, right? Like that's a really powerful tool. Um, so, so, you do have to, I feel like, take the bad with the good, I guess. So true. It's so true. I mean, I wonder what you think about this because I actually, and I meant to ask you, I meant to share this with you ahead, but I didn't, but I know you're going to have thoughts on it. So I feel like, feel like it's, it's a simple one to get into. The one thing that has always fascinated me is that when I was growing up, again, again, true, this is like a true hallmark of, of the millennial generation, right? Is <laughs> the got milk. Um, yes. Right. What year was that? That was like the late nineties or mid, whatever it was. And I always thought it was honestly, even at the time, even as a kid, I was like, that's pretty brilliant. Like that's, I remember seeing it and thinking that's really smart. And then what happened? Do you know what I like? I mean, and I, and you can see how there's like this attempt to kind of come back to that vibe a little bit, um, through, I want to say it's national dairy Alliance or, I'm not even yep. sure who is. Yeah. Who, okay. There's a few. There, right. We have a national checkoff. Okay. Okay. So you can see that there's like some moves being made, but I actually think that now, and especially going back to what you were saying about social media, like my personal take would be to, uh, that instead of doing it this way for this consumer and this generation, Gen Z being like the new kind of target of, of consumerism these days, is to talk to people about what the day in a life 
in the life of a dairy farmer actually is and like what do dairy farmers actually do and what does it mean what what is the production process like and why do we need it and what makes it so important and i think that's what's really missing is that now like i saw them doing something or someone doing something that was like had emma roberts posting about <laughs> drinking milk <laughs> and i'll be honest like it was a shocking post it just really got me laughing because i was like you guys you missed the mark like she's literally just there like she's like listing the nutrients found in and you're like Okay, so this celebrity drinks milk. Like, oh, cool. Like, what? <laughs> like, it was just sort of like, wow, you really tried to go back to the 90s in a social media context and it didn't quite land. So I wonder if you can tell us, just tell us, first of all, your thoughts on all of this, your thoughts yes. on the milk influencing. <laughs> so I love that you brought this up. So I recently just joined the National Checkoff for Dairy Marketing Amazing. Board. I was like very new to it. So um, but obviously, I'm very excited. I, I had a big push from um, one of my dad's close friends, a fellow dairy farmer who really pushed me to join that. And I'm now I'm really glad um, that I was accepted and appointed from uh, USDA. Amazing. And so it is a lot going on in the dairy marketing space, to say the <laughs> least. I mean, everyone loves the got milk. I mean, that's considered one of the most successful marketing campaigns of all time as far as recognizable one of the issues with it is it didn't necessarily sell more milk it didn't tell you anything about why milk was good or what happened on the farm it was exactly we said a celebrity just like you know posing with a glass of milk um it, and so it didn't necessarily as deep rooted as we all loved it from the 90s as millennial kids right. it didn't actually tell you anything about milk the process or anything and so I do think that there's been like also a lot and you probably can speak to this more than me. You know, we had the whole like fat is terrible. We're still right. barely coming back from that. Like that's still, I mean, you know, All we day. on the podcast on Discover Ag this week, one of the news articles we covered was how whole milk is outlawed in schools because its fat content is too high. Yes, the whole milk and 2% kids have to have 1% milk because they're still fall under the old guidelines of like mm -hmm. fat is bad. And you're like, it's 2023. Can we like get better science and data. And so I think milk has really like still suffered from that. But I feel like there's been a real like insurgent of like people sharing about how they're going back to whole foods. And whether yeah. that's, you know, butter or milk, you know, they love those single ingredient products and and beef also, you know, as a dairy farmer, we all also participate in the beef um, industry. Mm -hmm. So those are whole products. And so I think there's a shift. And I still think dairy marketing, yes, is missing the mark a little bit of figuring out how do we bring dairy farming into the modern world and have people see it. And um, I do, I agree with you. I think that people are more interested in seeing what a dairy farmer is doing than maybe seeing a celebrity like drink yeah. milk. Like I actually shared the Hailey Bieber where she had the got milk shirt on and was like applying sunscreen. And you were like, what does that have to do with anything? She's like on a boat with a got milk t-shirt. And like, that's the, the ad. Um, but I mean, it was hysterical and people loved, I don't know, like people liked it, I guess, but it was like, um, yeah. So finding how do you connect people uh, with the modern day dairy farmer? It, it is a challenge, um, but I think it's, but like I said, I do feel like there's been a shift. I mean, really like just in the, we've been on the, this recording for 27 minutes now. And I honestly think the most mind blowing thing that I did not realize until today is the regional differences in cuisine of dairy cattle. Can I say cuisine? <laughs> Am I, am I allowed to say cuisine of dairy cattle? I feel like you could say cuisine. I've never heard it put that way, but I kind of love it now. I might steal it. I might, it might take that from you. <laughs> I'm going to use that. It's cuisine. It's, it's, it's the cuisine. Menu. It's they the have menu. very, uh, what would it be? Very refined palates the cows do. That is right. Alone is like, it's just hugely impactful because it really makes you realize just how actually local food production, even at scale, can be. And, uh, that's what's really missing. Like, that's what I think has been missing in so many ways from, a, especially for a generation who, even though I would consider us to be like the, like the pinnacle of curiosity, let's say Gen Z is that times 1000, right? It's like, we want to know where every single thing comes from and every single, you know, there's like at every single touch point, every ingredient in any product, what is that? What does this mean? And then actually be able to empower people to make decisions based on credible information rather than misinformation, which is exactly what you've been saying too. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the local to another this I hope this blows your mind because I always think it's really cool. Speaking of local is actually milk is one of the most local products you can buy at your grocery store. If you buy regular old conventional like plain on the shelf, which is what I buy from my family, it typically comes from a dairy farm less than 100 miles from where you live. And it makes it from the farm to the grocery store in 48 hours. So like, that that's really amazing. cool. That is really cool. And so true. Okay. 
All right. So we, this is perfect transition because we have to get into this. So let's use this as our first myth. Cause we're going to do a little, little myth busting sesh, but let's use this as our first one. Where, where does this come from that people have this, this perception or misperception <laughs> that, that milk comes from some enormous vat in that's thousands of miles away and that is mass produced and that like, where, where does that start? That this is some mass commodity product that's basically like Kraft mac and cheese and not even, not even, I mean, I'm sure the folks at Kraft are doing fine. <laughs> I have I a few things to say about that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, there is. There's a, there's a definitely a disconnect. Um, you know, I think it's like 97% of all dairy farms in the United States are family owned and operated, no matter their size. There is this idea too, that like big is bad. And I mentioned like we're a large farm and it, it doesn't make it bad. Um, I think it's just people have gotten so removed from agriculture that a lot of times I say, wait, we have a consumer that is like, thinking of ag as it was in like the 1950s. Like a yeah. lot of people are stuck in that era because maybe you had a grandparent that farmed or a great grandparent or a great uncle or, you know, someone kind of of an older generation. And so that's your three generations away. So when I think about how my grandfather, you know, milk cows by hand in the Netherlands in the 1950s to where we are now, that's a long way to catch people up on this like scale of agriculture, right? Like imagine, you know, waking up if I, you know, if my grandfather waking up in New York City today, you know, like that's a huge jump for people to make to understand all of the changes that have gone into ag and why they've gone, you know, why we've made these changes. You know, we had people that wanted more affordable foods. They wanted, you know, convenience. We have, but there's a lot of things that went into play in our food system of why we ended up where we're at. But I think people can still feel really good about the fact that there's like family farms, whether that's dairy farms or cattle ranchers that are producing our food. Um, and so there's, you know, and even from there, like I joke, people always ask, where can we buy your milk? Where can we get your milk? My milk actually goes to one of the world's largest cheese plants and oh. it gets turned into Walmart <laughs> brand cheese, Kraft mac and cheese, yeah. um, Subway. If you've had Subway cheeses, it probably came from great our, cheeses, by the way, at Subway, I've got to say great the, cheeses. The pepper jack is <laughs> yeah. definitely from New Mexico because we so add our peppers, our New Mexico peppers to it. Um, and so, and I mean, our milk quality, I would put our milk quality against anyone in the country. Like it's, we have amazing milk quality standards. And so just because it's, we're turning our milk into a very convenient, you know, affordable product, like it, you can feel good about Walmart brand cheese, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that people do just associate like kind of like a big, big food with like, they, they don't realize that there's like family dairy farms behind those big foods and those big names and those big brands. That's the perfect way to kick off our myth busting moment. I've got to say it's a perfect way to kick it off. I think that's that's such a powerful point and it's so true. It's like just because something seems like quote unquote big food does not mm -hmm. necessarily mean that there aren't really small family owned and operated farmers behind all of it. I mean, I, I think like we really, you're so right. It's like actually the evolution of technology that has brought us to that rather than this like old school way of mass producing food in the 1950s. Such a good point. All right. Okay. Let's get Let's get it. Where should we even start? Let's start with the let's start with the environmental stuff because Ooh, I feel yes. like that's that's got to be a hot button for you. I feel like it's one that honestly makes me cringe <laughs> so so desperate, so deep. It's like a deep cringe. It like starts in the stomach and then it just kind of moves to the extremities. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about okay. Let's. Well, I'm just gonna say the statement you and you you tell me everything that's wrong with it. Okay. Carbon emissions from dairy farming are the greatest contributor to climate change and carbon emissions at, overall in the U.S. Oh, my God. I love that. And you can and you could play that on any, you know, like cattle are the largest emitter worldwide. There's so many things. Um, fun. It's killing me, too. Yes. Killing me, too. Um, animal agriculture as a whole accounts for about 4% of total emissions in the United States. <laughs> Okay, say that again. So, just, just because our listeners need to hear that one more time. Animal okay. agriculture, and that includes ca uh, cattle ranching, that yeah. includes hogs, chicken, all types of animal agriculture account for 4% of total greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Dairy is about 2% of that. If the entire United States went vegan, completely vegan, we would reduce our carbon footprint by about 2.6%, which is not nothing. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that's something, but we would create some nutrient deficiencies, especially in underserved, um, underprivileged communities. And we would increase a lot of times our calorie intake. And I think if there's one thing in the United States we can usually agree on in the diet world, and I mean, you're mm -hmm. the registered dietitian, so I'll let you speak, but we don't need more calories. We need more nutrient dense foods yes. and whole foods. And so the yes. thought of taking away 
animal protein, um, especially when that like, I mean, I live in rural America, talk about places that sometimes it's hard to get food, like mm -hmm. my, you know, my grocery store is a Walmart, um, my nearest grocery store is a Dollar General. Mm -hmm. And when I go into the Dollar General, and I look at what's in there, at least there is milk, there's eggs, you know, I mean, at like, I looking at all of the packaged processed foods, not that there's anything wrong. I'm not like, I think you have to get what's affordable to you. But I am glad to see milk at least offered, you know, in a convenience store or in a Dollar General and and see eggs on the shelf. And so the thought of like taking away those two very nutrient dense foods when you think of animal proteins um, is disheartening. You know, it's like, okay, we can make our world maybe more sustainable, although I would argue that there's lots of repercussions we don't consider. Um, right. It's at what cost? And and that's the thing is we get carbon tunnel vision when we look oh at emissions and like comparing a cow's carbon to a car's carbon is not even close to the same thing. You know, cows and the methane they produce are part of the natural carbon biogenic carbon cycle and that essentially like carbon is a more potent greenhouse gas but it's a short-lived gas. It is removed from the atmosphere within 10 years versus mm -hmm. carbon dioxide is about 100 years. And so within 10 years, we talked about that cropping mm -hmm. cycle, like the crops are taking up the methane that the cows are eating that, you know, like it's a cycle that is yeah. a part of it. It is completely different than looking at, say, the transportation or energy industry. Um, and then we've also set some really big goals. Uh, in the last 70 years, dairy farmers have reduced our carbon footprint by 66%. And we have committed to being carbon neutral or better by 2050, which I think, mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of industries that are committing to that. Um, and I feel really good about where we're headed. I know from a personal level, we are getting ready. Actually, today I didn't have power earlier because we are transitioning our barn and our house is also on our barn power <laughs> um, to solar power. And wow. so we'll be a fully solar powered barn. So like, there's some really amazing things happening to like, we know we can do better. And so we are. And instead of saying, let's get rid of all of animals because wow. of carbon, it's like, why don't we consider how we can work together to get better together? Because there's, there's a lot that cattle play. You know, I talked about what they eat, the byproducts, like mm. that plays into a healthy environment. Um, the byproducts that cattle eat, if they ended up in a landfill, it would increase those emissions by nine, 49%. No, let me get that. Hold on. I said that wrong. Let me say it again. Yeah. If we took the byproducts that cattle are eating and put them in a landfill instead of cattle eating them, it would increase emissions by 49 times. Oh, my God. Yes. It's crazy. So, so you can't just think about carbon, you know, like Wait. there's so much more to it. Thank you for using this phrase that I am definitely, definitely stealing, although I will credit you carbon tunnel vision. <laughs> yes. We, you're so right. I mean, we have that so massively. I am honestly tired of the phrase carbon emissions at this point because it feels like there is like all you have to do is be a human being in the world to know that like there's more that goes into anything than just one byproduct or just one set of circumstances that make yes. things so binary, like good or bad. Like we uh, when did we lose all nuance? It's like maybe we lost it because we start talking like this and it's like there's it's the carbon tunnel vision. So so one thing I wanted to ask you about on this topic is Let's just use my favorite and least favorite example, which is something like a plant-based burger. Or or because okay, because we're talking dairy, we'll go plant-based cheese. Yeah. <laughs> my my whole point is that even when some of these products first hit the market, uh, my my initial gut reaction was no. <laughs> and then in trying to be fair to to the idea of people well-intentioned people as most people are right like behind behind something like this my thought was all right so like let's just say in the best case scenario you're, you you're using soybeans and therefore you're using soybeans so you are using a more complete protein something that's more nutritious something that is actually beneficial to soil as if you're using soybeans you're benefiting the soil when you're when you're growing them you know i mean there, there's plenty of benefits right but not with some of the other ingredients that go in there. Not with the idea that in order to recreate the taste of something that tastes like real cheese, you got a lot of you got to put a lot of shit in there. So, like, <laughs> I mean, like it's just like the truth, right? And then you've got to take those products and ship them, and you've got to ship them using what? We're not using a horse and buggy, you know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just that there's just so much more that goes into the life cycle of some of these so-called products that are there to reduce carbon emissions that I just feel like we're not looking at the the sort of 360 scope or impact of what this is actually doing to our environment in other ways. 
Yeah, it's funny you said the like you're not looking at the whole thing. So one right. of the big things for animal ag was when the UN came out with their livestock's long shadow. It had yeah. a ton of miss. It has been since retracted. They put new wow. numbers out, and it doesn't matter, right? Like you can't you can't unring that oh. bell, kind of. Um, but one of the things was is um, for agriculture for animal ag they did a life cycle analysis. So they looked at every single from like how the food got to the cattle to you know the cattle being born to you know every single piece of the puzzle and for transportation they did tailpipe emissions only so they didn't look wow. at cars being made cars decomposing the batteries of cars like none of that it was just tailpipe emissions so you were literally not comparing apples to apples at all and um it's kind of similar i feel like in like the plant-based situation i'm a first and foremost i'm a huge advocate for food choice. I think that people have to make the choices that work for them. My thing is don't tell me that your plant-based yes. burger or plant-based milk is healthier or better for the environment because Thank there's you. not the numbers or data there to prove it. And that's lab grown meat. If you've been following that story, like they were big, like, oh, this is going to like solve climate change, lab grown meat. It's come out that lab grown meat is 25 times larger of a emitter than regular con just conventional beef. And it's, you know, and then you know, we can, talk about, you know, the different products that go into all these plant-based burgers. I think people think when they're eating plant-based, they're eating like, you know, a lot, a variety of products of yeah. plants and that they're like local. And when you really like break down where they're coming from, that's not always the case. Okay. And, um, you, and you mentioned soil health. So I'll mention like, you think about like a beef burger, mm -hmm. um, conventional beef spends two thirds of its life, usually on average on grass and only one third of its life is, um, you know, finished in like a feedlot style situation. That's just conventional beef. And one of the five principles of soil health is a ruminant animal. So that's a cattle grazing out mm -hmm. on pasture to improve soil health. Uh, and so there's just, I mean, it's a nuanced conversation, right? You yeah. can take this conversation in 50 different directions because there is so much that goes into it. There's so many layers that it's not just like, Oh, plant-based. That means I'm, People see plant-based sticker on anything yes. and think it's healthy or it's better for the environment. And the, those two things at their core are not true. That is so well said. And I couldn't agree more. I, it's those two things that I, I, you could not have said it better here for the food choice, but not here for the assumption or the presumption that either of the, that eating yes. in a certain way is going to be healthier for humans or healthier for the planet. Those just aren't true. So as long, so eat whatever you like, but like, I'm not going to tell you not to eat it, but I do feel like you should know these, that, yes. that it's not necessarily that is how I nutritious. feel. Could not be more knowledge is power, and that so like on the Discover Ag podcast, we cover three trending news articles um, mm -hmm. every single week of like ag and food space. So yeah. if you see a headline that's like you know lab grown meat is, is better for the environment, like we'll take that and break it down and get into the nuanced conversation because that is it's like you can make whatever food choice. I want people to go to the grocery store and actually feel really confident when they buy food. Yes. I want them to know like I buy the conventional milk on the shelf, the cheapest milk on the shelf. I'm a dairy farmer. I know exactly what goes into that milk and I feel so confident about it. Like I, I don't even think twice when I grab that milk off the shelf and I want people to have that same confidence. And I think knowledge is power in that way. If, if you choose to buy organic, you choose to buy grass finished beef, you choose to buy plant-based. I, it doesn't matter to me. I just really want you to understand what went into producing those products. Thousand percent. All right. On that, tell us these two, they go hand in hand. Okay. Dairy is filled with hormones and antibiotics. I was like waiting. I was like, when are we going to get to that? That's such a good question. It's probably one of the most asked questions on online. Yeah. So I'll start with antibiotics. Okay. Antibiotics. So we are conventional dairy. So we do give our cows antibiotics when they are sick and it's prescribed by a vet. We have a vet that comes out once a week that does herd health checks. Mm. Um, and so it has to be prescribed. When a cow is given antibiotics, she is milked in a completely separate area, tank, line, however, you know, every dairy works a little different, but her milk does not enter the food supply system at all ever. And mm -hmm. even after she has stopped taking antibiotics, there is like a withdrawal period or a withhold period where we still continue to milk her in a different line until all antibiotics have cleared her system. Then, you know, then people are like, well, mistakes happen, things happen. Every single tanker of milk is tested for antibiotics to the parts per trillion before it leaves my farm. And yeah. if it comes back and it's an immediate test, so they know right then, if it were to test positive, we would have to pay for that milk and it gets dumped. 
it's also tested again at the plant before it ever enters the food supply system. So there's multiple checks and balances along the way. And it's not just antibiotics. If my milk is one degree over 36 degrees, they won't pick it up. It has to be 36 degrees. Wow. Like, there's so many details that go into it. Um, and one of the things too, like from an economic standpoint, dairy farmers are paid for milk quality. Mm. So the higher the milk quality is and the components that go into it, like financially, it makes more sense for us to produce a very high quality product. Um, and so there's tons and tons of checks and balances. Like if I could just tell, I'm like, it is so milk is one of the safest foods you can get on the shelf because there's so many ways that it's so many times it's it's tested along the way. Mm-hmm. And then from a hormone side, Oh man, the hormone conversation. So the big one was in the 80s and 90s, dairy farmers used a product called RBST. If you pick up a gallon of milk now, it says RBST free. Fun fact, there is not milk on the shelf with RBST or cows treated with RBST anywhere. That is like completely, I don't, I don't think it's like outlawed. I think, I mean, I think that processors have basically just said, we won't pick up your milk if it has that because consumers don't want it. It wasn't necessarily a safety thing. It was more a consumer consumers yeah. will demand things from us and we're going to comply. Right. Um, so I, I always ask my dad about it. My dad is like, I, he was like, I used it like one year in the eighties and then stopped using it. And he was like, I didn't really mm-hmm. like the product. And it sucks because it has had such a long repercussion of people still associating like cows have milk, having hormones when, I mean, all foods plant-based also have naturally yeah. occurring hormones, but there is no added like hormones or we're not giving yeah. the cows hormones like RBST into the milk and but it it's so lost in translation it's just it's one of those things that like you know consumers found out about it didn't like it and it has just continued to live on even though it's no longer something that's even used well you know i wonder what you think about i would i'd love to know what you and your dad think about this which is that like when you see it on food products even just the statement no rbst i think it's just reminding people of the fact that it ever was there and we're now 30 something years after that. (laughs) So why are we doing that? We're just, it's like the, the effective frequency, right? Of just seeing the words, no RBST, right? Yeah. So that is one of the hard things, food labels. That's another thing we talk about on the podcast all the time. It's like food labels. You can't live with them and you can't live without them. (laughs) You're going to have consumers that are going to look for that label. And if it's not there, they're going to say, why, I guess this milk has this, you know? So I guess, you know, I need to pick a different milk. You know, it it goes even to like, I feel like the gluten-free conversation. I've Mm -hmm. seen milk that says gluten-free and I've talked with the processors and they said, we're getting asked if it, you know, so what are we supposed to do? Not put it on there. And then they're going to pick a different milk that maybe says gluten-free. And like, Mm -hmm. it's, it, people are looking for labels, but then labels are so confusing, so misleading. Um, I think that labels started out with really good intentions. And then somewhere right. along the way, we ended up not with the best intentions. <laughs> like they um, just have become marketing ploys that people don't always understand what they mean. So true. I would say plant. we have a lot. We have a lot to thank. And by thank, I mean the exact opposite <laughs> on plant-based. <laughs> On, the word, on just plant-based, on literally everything. It's like everything. all of these foods were meant to be plants. They came from plants. There are some foods that were never meant to be plants. And like, like, for example, like I like to say milk, beef jerky. That was never meant to be a plant-based food. Let's not try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the Arby's yeah. commercial where they made the plant or the meat-based carrots as a joke. Like, <laughs> That's right. It's an amazing commercial. I'm totally with you. All right. So last one on on this topic is, and this one is one that comes up for me a lot. It's also such a popular kind of TikTok thing, which is like food that's produced in the US is so much worse for human health and for the environment than food that's produced in Europe. Oh my God. We literally are covering this yeah. on the Thursday oh, episode of that. Discover Ag. Yeah. For some, uh, there's some nuanced conversation there about what's allowed in the United States yeah. versus EU. Um, and it goes with kind of the EU and the United States have different approaches of how we approach like risk and risk assessment and like what's mm-hmm. okay. Like they have a hazard approach, bro- approach and we have a risk approach. So there is things that are not allowed in the, uni- or not allowed in the EU that are allowed in the United States. Um, and then from the animal side, they also have things that are labeled differently. So sometimes something is called something different there. So there is, I've seen something in the animal ag space where they're like, oh, well, Europe doesn't have antibiotics. And they're using a similar product as the United States, but it's not 
considered an antibiotic in the EU and it is in the United States. And we're both using that product, but then like the US gets a bad rap because we are labeling it differently than the EU does. And similar with, you know, like additives and preservatives and all, all of those things, there is a lot of there are some things that are not allowed. And then there are some things that they call them something different. They have different labeling laws. Um, they are not always required to disclose things the same way the U.S. is. Tons of conversation there. I think overall, like when you're eating whole foods, whether that be, you know, a carrot or a steak, they're going to be comparable. Uh, you know, if you're getting into packaged foods, there is going to be those differences between how things are regulated and how things are labeled. Such a good point. All right. Our last one on this. What about when people say to you, I don't, I don't, I only eat foods that are USDA organic or non-GMO project verified? Yeah. So organic is not a necessarily a health claim. It is actually a farming practice. And that is what I think people need to know. Um, you know, organic is farmed in a certain way. So if that's on a dairy farm, the cows are out at pasture so many um, days out of the year and they are not allowed to be given antibiotics. Or if they do give a cow antibiotics then the cow has to move into the conventional like supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, if those two things are important to you, you should choose organic, you know, and, and there's other things. It depends, you know, carrots are going to be different than strawberries. Like you kind of have to look into the farming practices behind all of them. But if those farming practices are important to you, then I think you should choose that. I don't think choosing organic because it's healthier. When you look at the nutrient content of milk, whether it's conventional or pasture or organic, they are very, very similar on their nutrient content. There is some minute differences in some of the omegas on grass fed Mm -hmm. versus conventional. Um, But I would say you're you're a dietitian. So again, I'll let you speak to this, but it's not a good source of omegas. If you want to get omegas, like have a great salmon, don't get it out of a glass (laughs) of milk. Like it's just, that's not where you're getting your omegas from. Um, But again, like I think it's like kind of like your your personal like decisions of what matters to you and your family, what fits within your budget, what fits within your lifestyle, you know, where you having to go grocery shop. Um, Again, knowing everything I know about dairy farming, I I buy conventional milk on the shelf at my grocery store and feel confident in giving it to my kids, my family, all of those things. I love it. All right. I got to ask you our last question of the podcast, which is what is the most annoying (laughs) What's the most irritating wellness slash nutrition myth that you have seen so far just in 2023? Oh, man, in 2023. Well, that's tough because I was going to go with the fat thing. Please, you can. we can broaden it. It doesn't have to stay to 2023. Okay. Well, actually, then I will. I okay. fi- the, the whole milk being illegal in schools yeah. has really gotten under my skin um, in uh, the last couple of months. It's There's a whole – it's going through the USDA and, like, uh, legislation on whether they're going to make changes to it. And they may actually make it more strict that there's even more, like, limitations of what kids can have. And I think that's my mo- – I'm – it is my biggest pet peeve because if you look at like childhood obesity rates um, and then like milk consumption, they are in like opposite patterns. So I'm not sure how whole milk could get blamed for our obesity epidemic that we have going on right now. Um, and so that is probably, I'm like, can we, I think if we just got, I don't know, I'm like a whole foods advocate. I'm yes, like, can we just get I'm back to whole foods because you. that would solve all of all of our problems. It would make everything so much simpler and, yes. easier and more nutritious and it would solve a lot of current chronic disease problems that we have. I totally agree with you. Yes. Tara, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I feel like I learned so much. My brain is exploding. I feel like I'm going to have to go back and listen to this about 12 times just to make sure (laughs) that I know everything that you've just said. (laughs) Tell our listeners where they can listen to your podcast, what it's called, and where we can follow you and learn more about you. Yeah, if you're listening to this, you're probably a podcast person. So I'll start with that. It's Discover Ag Podcast, where every Thursday, weekly episode, and like I said, we break down trending news articles in the ag and food space. Um, We take requests, like people send in, our followers um, send in on our Instagram page uh, at discoverag underscore different news articles they see. And so then we can kind of get an idea of what people are wanting to see, what people have questions about. Um, And so you can follow us on there. And then um, on my personal page, at Tara Vanderdusen, it is our dairy farm life, our family life, um, some recipes here and there. And and just kind of what it's like out in, you know, dairy farm in rural New Mexico. Awesome. I cannot thank you enough. Tara, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide. It may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.